You're listening to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 110, and I'm back here again today with Patty Hall, and she is my co-host for this series on women writers. And today we have a really special guest returning to Reframe Your Life. And Patty, why don't you introduce her? I can't wait. So apparently I've heard now that Deborah Bakhti was the first guest on Reframe Your Life. You'll have to confirm that for me. I think a lot's happened in Deb's life today. So since she was on the first time and I can't wait to uh, introduce everybody to her recipe for empathy, transforming families into fans and seniors care. Deb is uh, local, that lives in Burlington, and both Sandy and I have uh, life connections to Deb, uh, which I'm sure will be revealed during our episode. Deb is a former seniors care executive who consults coaches and delivers keynotes and training to the seniors care sector through her company, Think Breakthrough. She lives in Burlington, and I'm, my personal favorite is I'm in love with her cat, Charlie, proud mom of two kids, and that's only part of Deb's story. So you take the business side, Deb being in corporate seniors care, and at the nexus of her professional life, she becomes a consumer of long-term care when her husband, who is diagnosed with a rare disease, is admitted as a young long-term care patient to a seniors care facility. Uh, The book was inspired, which I'm going to ask Deb to read a piece about. It was inspired by her dual bodies of knowledge, which I think makes her exceptionally unique in the field of empathy, but in particular in the field of care, which we can't have enough experts in. And I've always been um, so interested in the way Deb makes us look at the way we behave and the way our behaviors can inspire different reactions from people. And she applies that knowledge to the work that she does. I wonder, Deb, if you, first of all, want to say hello, and would you read a little piece for us about why you wrote Recipe for Empathy? Yes, well, thank you both for having me on your podcast today, and I would love to share a bit of the the section of my book where I, I talk about that. When I left my corporate job in 2017, my kids were grown and moved out, and my husband had died two years earlier. Departing the corporate world to become a consultant was not a decision that I made lightly. I was called to new work. I had learned and seen so much as a family member. I felt strongly that if I combined my knowledge from both sides of seniors care, I could improve the experience for others. I wanted to take all of the stories that I had gathered through the chaos of being a resident's wife, as well as other family experiences. I could share them as insights to create a better workplace for staff and improve experiences for residents and their families within the seniors care environment. Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. The dots that led to the writing of this book connected during a dinner conversation with a colleague It was a few months after Ty had passed away. And as our conversation meandered through how I was dealing with his passing, she asked about our admission day experience. I reflected on that most difficult, heartbreaking day and described how it felt like a transaction we were being processed through. I recalled the sights and smells, the busyness and the distraction, and our feeling that we were on a production line get the new resident admitted, complete the piles of paperwork, check the boxes. With tears in her eyes, she said, I feel so ashamed because we do that to families every single day. My memories drawn out of me by a kind, truly interested colleague sparked the message of this book and ultimately the passion I feel about bringing a focus on empathy back to seniors care. Of course, I didn't know it at the time, but this was one of the dots Steve Jobs referred to, one that contributed to my decision to leave my corporate job and dedicate my work to helping seniors care providers create stronger, healthier, more vibrant and positive relationships with their families and staff. Thank you for reading that, Deb. And I was reflecting on that as you were reading and thinking about how important this work is now more than ever. And we have had a rough season for long-term care and um, on both sides for families. And I can't even imagine what it's been like for people working during this pandemic in 
the environments that they're they've been working in and I was thinking about the words you used that you felt a strong call that this was more than just a consulting job or the next step out of the corporate world into something new for you but that it was a something that came in your life because of your own experience and your own desire to help families and I think it would be weird or remiss of us not to talk about what's happening right now and not to get into the politics of it but just to get into how important your work is right now and where you see or what you would think would be really helpful in that environment right now for someone who's going in every day to work and they're all clothed in the PPE and they're facing the mistrust from the families and not even seeing the families, but feeling the burden of being the person there. And I, I don't know, it's a big question, but is there one thing that when you're hearing these stories that you think, I'd like to say this to you on the front lines right now during this crisis? Well, the first word that comes to mind when you say that is about how do you stay connected? You don't have the opportunity to have those ad hoc conversations with a family member as they're walking down the hall to go and see their loved one. Mm -hmm. And I think initially what happened was staff were just so busy trying to keep their residents alive and safe and healthy. And so it wasn't part of the initial thinking for some to think about a communication strategy and how do they reach out number of friends that I spoke to that have family members in long-term care said they, they didn't receive anything. There was no phone call, no email. The only time they would get a reach out is if there was a positive case. And what happens is that there becomes this information gap for families. And when we don't know what's going on, we make up stories about what's going on and we read what's in the papers. And so the, I think it's two things I would say to frontline staff is first of all, I mean, I think people watching healthcare workers going in day after day and putting their lives at risk, my goodness, just the, the level of gratitude and respect and compassion that we need to have for them. And also how can they be supporting each other through that? And then what are those small things that they can be doing to let families know that although they can't come in and they can't see, they're still thinking about how difficult it is for the family. Because I think the empathy works both ways. I would oh, yeah. want, and you do see families being empathetic and going with their signs and sending sandwiches and, and baked goods and things like that in, which is so important. Uh, or you've got people driving and honking their horns and waving and giving that kind of acknowledgement. Uh, and I think it's important for the staff to be just really intentional and strategic with how, how they're communicating, what they're communicating and the frequency. Um, and there's all sorts of different ways, particularly with technology, to be able to do that. Because the families are still part of the community, and they will be coming back in the community. We just don't know when and how that's going to look. with all sorts of new rules and requirements and regulations that are going to be expected of them. Yeah, the, it's, there's an attitude here, isn't there, that may shift as a result of COVID, but I think we'll all celebrate an industry and a sector that is getting going to get more attention because it has always deserved it. You know, I don't know where the adage comes from that it says a lot about a culture or a community, a country, how they treat their so-called elderly, their infirmed, you know, their vulnerable citizens. And I think uh, it's time for Canada to revisit that. But what I love is the positivity of your book that you offer tools to actually acknowledge that maybe we're not as empathetic or as aware of the reactions that our behaviors, our words, our language, even our physicality will have on people. And you make it okay for us to not be doing it as well as we are. And I love that about your book that you don't, you don't shame us that we're not possibly as empathetic as we could be or self-aware, especially under those stressful situations. And the two-sidedness of it is key here, isn't it? Just like you said, that there is the family and there is also the, the worker who wants to do everything for your loved one. And both sides being more aware means we'll get it better, but there's no shame in the fact that we're learning as we go because that's what relationships are. 
Well, and what I really appreciate when I, I go out and I, I do workshops and speeches about the recipe and, and I share the story and the examples of where I felt that it was so transactional and then providing those tools and things that they can be doing differently for that. The number of frontline staff that I've come up to me, you know, with their, the tears in their eyes saying, I was that nurse that you were describing doing the checklist in the admissions meeting. I never thought about how the family was feeling about it. I, I thought I was doing a good job. And I, I say, you, you are doing a good job. And it's difficult if you've already had a busy day, you've got another admission and an already busy day that needs to be processed. And, and when you take that approach, that's the experience for the family. But the family woke up that morning, the last thing in the world that they wanted to be doing likely was driving their loved one to a nursing home to admit them where they were going to live until they die. And having that opportunity to even look at the backstory of how many years we were struggling with Ty's illness and decline, you have to be in a pretty precarious health state to be approved to move into long-term care. Right. And so they hadn't and again, no, I can completely understand why. They're not thinking that this family has already gone through three, four years and hanging by a thread. And the, the, uh, the anticipatory grief that they've experienced because they're another family and resident who's, you know, half of 50% of residents leave a long-term care home every year, mostly right. by passing away, sometimes right. by transfer. Um, so, you know, you can only imagine how many times that they're doing that, but bringing that human element, compassion, empathy, feeling back to it, because that's what families remember. Mm. Well, can you give us a taste of your lead up while you're there before Sandy moves us on? I'm just to go into the memoir-esque piece of this a little is what was the difference between the sort of the split between the before and the after for you of there's your lead up you're you're a corporate executive in the industry but you're also the wife of a long-term care consumer you know about to be a resident and you're moving into that was your expectation pretty matter of fact you knew you thought it would be shitty going in when you went through this intake experience or were you hopeful did you have any context for how it might go and which hat did you find yourself wearing the wife or the corporate executive going in? Hmm. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we're looking back almost nine years now. I think the lead up, you know, and the case manager told us you can't take care of him at home anymore. He has to go on the wait list. I think I was going through the motions. Um, I, I mean, I knew intellectually this was the right decision as most families probably come to. And I don't know that I was able to really process that, what that would look like, what the new life would look like. So probably part of the coping mechanism was going through the motions, okay. right? Getting what, what needs to be packed, uh, the paperwork that needs to be done, that type of thing. And I think the day that we were bringing him in, I was expecting more of an emotional connection because now the move was happening. Right. And so it was probably a bit of both. Mm -hmm. I mean, six months previously, my dad became a resident in long-term care, but I wasn't on the front lines with that. I was more in the background coaching my mom because I had my hands full with Ty's health issue and our two kids. Yeah, it's, and, he, and Ty was young. I don't know if we've mentioned that, but people listening might not be aware of that he was he was quite young going into the situation as were you with a young family yes yeah he was uh i mean i, I married somebody a few years older than me uh, but he was 63 and you know it's only about 10 to 12 percent of the population in long-term care that's under age 65 so his his peer groups were typically people in their 80s and my peer group of family members other other wives were in that age range and women that were the same age as me were typically the daughters mm -hmm. of the right yeah i would imagine a lot of people working in long-term care in some way also felt a call to that kind of work you know that there's a mm -hmm. lot of compassion 
And like all of us who have worked in any, any industry at all, any business, you start with this idealism about what your work is going to be. And then you get into it and you discover that you're going to be dealing with a lot of realities in, within that role. And I think that your work is, I've benefited from it personally, but I think it's so great. And I would love it if you could walk through your recipe that we've been talking about, just at a high level, even what the recipe is that, that you've put in your book. And we can probably just stop along the way and chat about some of those ideas that you've so eloquently written about. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an acronym for six strategies for transforming families into fans, but it really is a relational recipe. When you think about the different elements that we can apply, and the R stands for reset, and it really is about being able to take that step back and pause and reset yourself when you feel like you are, could be triggered or reactive in a situation. And that can happen, and I'm sure that I've created that when I was a family member coming to a staff and having a complaint or a concern and my, my emotional level as a family member wondering why this isn't happening. You know, my, my mom seems to be all out of sorts and it doesn't seem that there's anyone that's concerned about what the issue is, as an example. Right. And what can happen is that staff can just get very defensive and reactive and then that triggers the family right so it's that it's that interplay isn't it is that uh, and you get into in your book about the need to reset uh on whichever side you're on but it's that responsiveness we have to each other and if we could only be aware of one thing it's that just try to think about it before you react and i'm as guilty as anyone of having an emotional reaction when i feel somebody's inferring something and we're so defensive about our loved ones especially those that need us to be their second in command and be their advocate but it's the awareness of um just just stepping back and I, I know that's part of the recipe too about that taking that moment to say well wait a minute why would this person mean something that i'm taking so so personally as if it's a jab it quite likely isn't you know it's that whole we're doing the best we can in a really difficult situation I, that resonates with me yeah, and you've also got people that are coming in you know they, they could be bringing their they maybe they just had a, a you know they, they tried to get the their there's their kids dressed for school. Well, school's not a good example because school's not on right now. Um, but, you know, they're dealing with those stressors and they're bringing that into work with them. Right. They, they're bringing that residue in with them. So I've got some clients after a workshop, they decided I, I play the Taylor Swift shake it off. Yeah. And so they've implemented at the nurse's station during shift change. Uh, they do take three deep breaths and then they put shake it off and they just sort of dance and shake it off. And it. it's a great way of being able to reset for people needing to go home and not bring the day's work with them and people right. that are just coming in. And the residents find it quite entertaining, shall we say. I love that. Oh. I had no idea. Oh, I would love to see you snap a video of that some, because wouldn't it be nice to see that kind of light, Sean, on long-term care staff, just trying to keep it real, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking when you mentioned uh, about the reset, when you were talking about that, when people come into uh, an environment like this, a lot of people really believe that the squeaky wheel gets the oil, you know, that saying. And so yep. they, I would imagine that people are just there in the, in someone's face. And that empathy, like we've said, needs to go both ways. Like people think I'm going to get what I need and I'm going to demand it and I'm going to ask for it. And that must be very wearing for people on a day, day in, day out basis. Yes. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like in any situation. And when we get to the final E of the recipe, we, we can come back to that point. Okay. All right. Well, well, why, why don't we go to the second E then? So the second First. E is eyes. It's about eye contact and just the importance of, taking a moment to actually make eye contact. Now, assuming culturally that that's appropriate. So when, when that is, and I did the, the little trick that I offer in there is 
to make sure you're making eye contact is just to notice the color of the other person's eyes. And in the workshops, it's so fun because I get them to look at the person next to them. But the only instruction is just notice the color of their eyes. And within seconds, there's chattering, there's laughing, giggling, conversations. It takes a bit of effort to get them all back. And it's, there's a release of oxytocin when you make eye contact. So it's, and some people say, well, they get giggling and laughing and talking because it just feels weird to be looking at somebody that way. But it feels different when someone's actually, and when you're noticing the color of their eyes, you're not thinking about what you want to say. Mm. So within that chapter, we talk about eye contact and the importance of body language, facial expressions, uh, resting bitch face. (laughs) And I say that because I have it. Uh, how that how that can impact a family member you could trigger a family member because you're I'm thinking about something else so the expression on my face is not very welcoming but the family is taking it personally potentially and and so just bringing the awareness to how we are showing up with our eye contact and our body language and you've know, been talking about how hard that is to do virtually. So, you know, if people on a Zoom call, and right. if, if that's the way now, if there's a, um, if, if that's the way somebody in, in that environment needs to communicate with a family member, I'm not sure if that's happening at all. But if it was, you know, we don't make eye contact on Zoom, we're always looking down at the picture and not up at our camera that's that's true although i think i'm um more aware of the details of the other person handling things on video so maybe that's my introvert showing but i've noticed that it is easier maybe it's less off-putting for the other person for me my intensity because i'm an eye contact stare into the eyes person but i'm not in their personal space when i'm getting intense so you know i've always wondered actually if sandy's eyes were blue or green i had just assumed that they were blue and deb it's impossible to miss your chocolate drop eyes but i find that my intensity isn't as intimidating for people um, they're not, they don't look away on video. They're fully engaged with me, but you did just draw attention to the fact, Sandy, that we choose what we're looking at and we choose the view we have of a person too, don't we? And I think that's just another shift in our context and how we relate to each other that we're going to see after this period of time, the next generation is going to reap the rewards of our suffering as always. <laughs> I, well, I think Deb's going to be really busy. <laughs> That's what I'm. Predicting. That's what I think too. That's what I think too. Well, so are we on to C now? Yes. Well, C is about curiosity, and I call it the question connection. Mm-hmm. And this idea of it's so easy to jump to conclusions, make assumptions, and make judgments about another person's behavior, intention, again, the stories that we make up. So the idea around this is how can we bring in a place of curiosity in a situation to better understand before we make up that story and those assumptions to be able to clarify where that person is actually coming from and to avoid conflict or confusion about the situation. It takes, it, it takes that um, being thoughtful about that because it's very easy to say, for example, I can't believe the family is being so demanding. Right. Right. That can have a bit of judgment sounding to it. What were they thinking? That kind of thing. And so in the workshops, we play with that and say, well, that, let's, let's come from a place of curiosity. I wonder what's occurring for that family that they're so concerned about that. Mm. You know, I'm curious, I'm curious what's driving their thinking on that, or I'm curious what's happened previously that's leading them to believe that that's what's happening now, right? And so even saying, I wonder, and I'm curious, shifts the energy that you have, because when you're curious, you're more open. Uh, It's a softer kind of energy. Um, And we, as human beings, are hardwired to, to, judge and criticize and gossip. And so it becomes a a practice of curiosity. You know, the studies that would say uh, children, they they average asking 400 questions a day. And for any of us who've had little kids, we know that to be true. But as adults, they, they ask 10, 15 questions a day, maybe. Right. So it's that, 
and it's an invitation to be able to better clarify and understand. And it comes back to what we were talking about earlier with the transactional versus the relational, because so many of our questions are transactional. We're always asking questions to get an answer to a specific um, question we have, not out of curiosity and not to just open things up and find out something that we might not be aware of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think without the curiosity, we fall back on some maybe bad habits and old scripts of being in tense situations, being suspicious of the other people, being defensive of the other person. And, you know, I loved what you said, Sandy, because it's so accurate, especially in my experience, it's been so accurate that uh, some families think they've got to go in guns a blazing and that they're, they're anticipating it's going to be really difficult to get what they desire for their person. Uh, so if you go in presuming that you've got to go in guns a blazing, there's no curiosity at all about what could be available to you or how extensively accommodating these people might be prepared to be or what the process is going to look like at all. And you get your backup going in. What if they've had a rough morning and it leads to this, um, it leads to rubbing each other the wrong way, but it can really determine the future of the relationship, can't it? If this first moment at the admissions doesn't go well, it can be a tiresome relationship and really, you know, harm your loved one in the long run. Yeah. And you talk about that in the book too, Deb, about the first impressions. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of different research saying that, you know, seven seconds to make a first impression I've also read where it's like a fraction of a second and, you know, the whole thing about, you know, our attention span is less than that of a goldfish. So, you know, these things that are happening so quickly, but we're making these snap judgments. Yes. And, and it's because our, you know, our brains are hardwired to very quickly size up. Can I trust this person or not? Right. And friend, friend or foe, right? Yes. Yes. So that's why, uh, when I consult with my clients, it's, I say it's, it's like a, the term, I, it's like a front end loading the relationship. Take the time up front to be able to build that relationship and rapport, to start investing in that relational bank account and start building the trust. And not every family is going to feel the same level of angst and anxiety. You know, if, if I'm, for us, Moving Thai from our familial home into long-term care was a huge change. But if he had already been, or like my mom, moving to retirement and then moving her into assisted living, it wasn't as much of a transition. And if you've got a family who's been a bed blocker in a hospital, you could be delighted that they're moving into long-term care because of where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand where that family's coming from, understand understanding the family dynamics and trying to get a gauge on what their emotional state is like in that moment, because then you're able to meet them better where they are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's a very intense day. I mean, some families say they don't remember it at all, but when I, in my consulting work where we go in and we help the homes to redesign their admissions processes and I run these emotion map sessions and I, talk to families and staff and ask them different parts of that admissions journey and how they felt. They can always remember how they felt like in that meeting or for the family when they had to leave and go back to the car in the parking lot and drive home without their loved one. And, and I think that's what's so important is that we are able to tap into how we're feeling about it and to be able to acknowledge and a staff member can't take that pain away. And I don't think no. the members were expecting that, but that compassion, that empathy. And the other thing I say is that just assuring them we're, we've got your back. We're taking care of your loved one and, you know, and creating that openness in that relationship is so important. Mm-hmm. You use the Maya Angelou quote in the book, right? That, um, <clears throat> and as a person who loses her memory frequently, like I do, it's about, you always remember how someone or something made you feel and that so much of it changes your impression every time you walk into that facility that you're already um you already prepare yourself for what to shake off if you're aware that how you're received is going to color the relationship and as a family member you know that you want it to be as positive as possible because you want your 
your needs and your desires to be acted on as efficiently as possible. You don't want to become the family that is always asking for too much. And you don't want to be the staff member who has to say no all the time because you know you're you're showing some resistance so for me this it leads into your next letter in recipe about setting the intention about it's going to go well because i can do these things in advance it's going to go well yeah and so with that the the i in recipe is intention and what i write about is just asking yourself a very simple question which is what is my intention so before going into the admissions meeting as the staff to say what is my intention is my intention to get all the paperwork completed and all the boxes checked off and all of that done and and that could be part of it but the other part is uh, my intention is that i want this family to feel that they made the right choice in choosing our home and our team because then setting that intention allows them to then be intentional with how they're showing up and interacting and making the eye contact and and not doing the paper pushing uh having that kind of an experience and and i think any of us before we get into a situation or a conversation to be able to ask ourselves that question what is my intention here uh, you know is my intention uh to you know it, it could be you're having a, a challenging conversation with someone is my intention is that i want to drive home my point and i want to be right and i want to win or is my intention that i want to be able to have a collaborative conversation and create the best outcome possible i love that question you know what is my intention like you said it just it's it applies to so much in our lives to just pause and ask ourselves that it's like it is a reframing question right yes it, it's perfect for that it, it just stops you in your tracks and you have your agenda and your I, like i'm a list person your to-do list and your things but then if you just stop and you say okay what is my intention with this whatever i'm doing but in the admissions process for sure that can also be really helpful when you're sending a scathing email yeah right to be able to step back and and before you hit send what is my intention here <laughs> i've used that a few times <laughs> because you've never done it though have you deb no exactly <laughs> no but it is it right and it's about assessing outcome it's a i guess it's a little it's a little risk assessment as well but it's also that we have no business entering into relationship with someone in business or personal medical in particular settings if we don't know what it is we need to achieve and that's always been really directive for me in the medical sphere has been what is the outcome i really need if what i really need is for this person to give me a second opinion then i need to be listening rather than talking for example and that's always gotten me um better relationships with medical doctors which has been necessary in my life but it's also made me feel a lot better as a consumer of clinical care that I'm really making good use of the time and and not in there just ranting and raving about about my broken heart or the medical system for that matter. You know, and I think the other thing with intention and it, it's helpful for families as well, where I've needed to use that question going in, whether, you know, just having come from a full day at work and I'm tired and I want to get home and make dinner, but I got to swing in and, and visit uh, to what what kind of outcome do i want to create with the staff right? right and so you know i can think of where i was emotionally charged close to you know the the few weeks before my mom passed away because of situations but i needed to step back and say what is my intention here is it to berate the staff or is it to have a conversation to express my concerns so that we can work together to try to figure out how to turn things around and so even that that energy, I really do believe that the staff could feel that. And I, I, I had a conversation with one of the DOCs and I said, I'm, I'm really upset about what's happening and I respect you and the staff that are here. However, I need to see a different outcome and we need to figure that out. Is very different than just railing on them because staff in my workshops, when I say, you know those families, they're the passionate families and you see them walking down the hall and you bend down to tie your shoelaces, but your shoes don't even have shoelaces, or you duck <laughs> down the hall to avoid them. And every one of the staff, they get it. And it's like, you don't want to be that family. 
No. To your earlier point, Sandy, you don't want to be that family that feels that the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just explain to me, what is a DOC? Oh, sorry. That's a director of care. That's the person oh, okay. in a long-term care home that she, she, she or he or the RM that is responsible for the clinical care. Great. Thank you. Where are we in recipe? Are we at P? We're at the P, which is about being present. And I'm a big believer that we all have power in our presence. And it's something that we can sometimes squander, right, through, through distractions. And certainly cell phones, we're all guilty of that, uh, any of our electronic devices. But here it's about how can you practice being present in the moment when you're in a conversation or interaction with somebody so that they truly feel seen, heard, and respected. Right. And, and it's free. There's no additional cost in money or time to be present. And when, when you are able to offer that to people, uh, I just think it's amazing. We've all had those moments when we have felt somebody has been completely and totally present with us. It almost feels weird mm -hmm. because we're so used to this fragmented right. attention. Right. And that's it, right? And, and is that something that's happening when why the attraction to Zoom is because I can see one or two people, that's what's right in front of me. There's nothing else going on. Okay, you know, you might be looking at a phone or taking a picture and Sandy's looking out the window just to be funny, but it's true that all we can see is the person right in front of us. Now, I find if I was in an office situation, the setting would be very different, right? I would have um, multi, I'd, have, I'd probably be able to see out a window. I'd be looking at other people passing by. I might be in a, in a care home. You certainly would be looking at residents being moved around, at nurses and PSWs flying around. It is difficult to be present, but this one-on-oneness of Zoom, I hope it's teaching us something about how to have the presence for someone and how to hold space for what is um, a conversation that could have really pivotal results for a loved one. I mean, if you're not paying attention when someone's talking to you about their mother or their father who's very ill, and if you're also not focused on how that person's reacting and you're advocating for your mom or dad, then as you said, I love that word, you squander the presence. And that's exactly what it is. We and relationships fall apart in the rest of the world because we squander presence. Of course, it's going to happen in a tense situation where someone's uh, quality of care is concerned. Yeah. You know, and I can think about conversations I had with people that, whether it was with my mom when she was in assisted living or with Ty, that the difference in the quality of the conversation really came down to both of our ability to be present and attentive with each other. If I could tell that they were formulating their answer in defense of yes. what we were talking about, it, 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 broke that, it broke that trust. Right? So again, this is part of the investing in the relational bank account. And we all can work every day on practicing our ability to be present, even with ourselves. Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's sitting down and, and writing uh, for 10 or 15 minutes, noticing how distracted we can be or on, in a conversation with somebody else. But we, we can be distracted by the external things, but also our internal. We've got, what, it's like 60,000 thoughts a day that we have. And 80, I can't remember I what I wrote in the book, but it was research that I looked up. Like 85% of it is, is repetitive and right. negative. Right. <laughs> We've got that competing with our attention and our ability to be present. <laughs> I love how all of these elements of recipe really support each other. And when I think about being present, I immediately think of eye contact. So, you know, Patty was joking about me looking out the window, but it's so true. As soon as somebody looks at a device, at the, out the window, at something else, it's you miss that. You, you just yes. feel like they're not there anymore, like they're not present. And I, I know that is, we've been referring to Zoom, and I know that's why Zoom is quite fatiguing for people because we are exposed in a, a way that we can't hide behind a table where we're looking down at our phone. People can see what we're doing, and it, it's tiring. It's very tiring. Yeah. 
and presence Absolutely. is tiring. It's, it's, it takes a lot of energy and intention as well. In the workshops I do in this section, I ask them to reflect on someone in their life, whether it be in their personal life or in the work life, that they feel seen, heard, and respected when they're with. And it's incredible when people offer up, more often than not, it's somebody that they work with. And it's really cool when that person is in the workshop as well. And it may be their manager or a coworker. But things like when I go into her office, and ask if she's got a few minutes, she puts her pen down, pushes the whatever paperwork aside, and then sits down and is the eye contact. But that example of just putting your pen down is signaling, yes. I'm here, I'm present. Mm -hmm. And people sharing that, and it may have been years ago when that happened, and they still remember that, shows me how, uh, how valuable your presence to somebody else is and sometimes we don't even recognize the impact that we've had that's really meaningful for me and that is true as a someone who's constantly moving you know i'm um a perpetual multitasker you know i think it comes from having a child on my hip and running a business and all of those demands but as a fidgeter i am very conscious of the fact that i also need to convey that you have my full attention even though i'm you know fussing with the pages of my notebook or finding my next page to read just like i am now i'm more attentive to that because of your book i am so much more attentive to that the present and the energy and the focus that I need to give to my clients on the call and people in medical appointments because I'm now doing medical appointments on Zoom like everyone else. Yeah. I love the quote you have in here. It says, uh, we're, we are sucking the relational out of relationships and becoming purveyors of transactionships. Hmm. I think that's, uh, did you uh, Amazing. trademark that word, by the way? Or is that an actual word? <laughs> Maybe I should. Yeah. I remember the day she discovered it, though, and it was a big deal. And I'd be, I'd tell the secrets out of school here, but I think that came up on a giant whiteboard, didn't it? Didn't you make that come up on your giant whiteboard wall? I think it did. And, and I was asking if that was a real word, but if it isn't, we're going to use it anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, and there, are, there certainly are times when transactions are important. I mean, you know, I don't want to have a relationship with the ATM drive through no. And, and there may be times where you don't want to have a, have, have a relational connection with the person that's providing you a cup of coffee. True. Sometimes it, it could be in those moments where, and sometimes I would do this when you're able to go to Starbucks and, you know, hmm. not have to be doing the, uh, the drive-through, but to be able to actually just make eye contact with the barista and they'd almost look at me like, is there something on my face? What are you looking at? Because people don't usually, they don't even make eye contact with me. It's so true. Mm -hmm. Where are we at in recipe now? Presence was very meaningful for me. So thank you for taking the time on that one. Where do we go after P? Well, the last E in the recipe is about expectations. And this is really, I, I use a, a, a quote from Chip Conley's book, emotional equations, which is disappointment equals expectations minus reality. And in the context of the relationship with family members and, and seniors care style, when a family member feels disappointed, is to say whatever they were expecting didn't align with the reality of the situation. So something needs to be adjusted. And it isn't always about lowering expectations it's about adjusting expectations and there's a number of different misconceptions that people have about seniors care and one of them is that oh if, I put, if my loved one lives in seniors care they're going to get 24 7 one-on-one -on -one care that's not true the building provides 24 7 care but it's not that one-on-one -on -one. so i consult with my clients to say you want to understand what the baseline of expectations are that families have coming in. Be curious about what is it that they're expecting? What is it? What is their experience being? What have they heard? And then you can educate and inform and advise what the reality is. And, and then that way you're, you're lessening that potential for the disappointment, which then turns into frustration and anger 
and escalation of complaints. And then that starts fracturing the relationship. Because in fairness to them, they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's also important that staff have an understanding of what their expectations are of the family. So we talk about establishing a conversation around mutual respect, advising the family what the culture is like in the home, how we treat each other, what our expectations of when they have issues and concerns, how to bring those to us. And then we can also be, the family is sharing what they are expecting of the care staff in the relationship. I love it. Well, you know, I love everything about expectations. <laughs> yes, you do. It's a bit of a uh, topic in our home, but I, I do think that sometimes we're afraid to set expectations because uh, we don't want to disappoint people right off. You know, we, right. we realize or we are aware that they have expectations and we feel like if we set them or we bring up something, then it's going to be an awkward conversation. But it's so important to have the conversation and adjust them, like you said, when needed. We all have expectations. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and it's, um, I think it's a real opportunity to have that whether it be the education or the advice on that, because if I don't know what I don't know, and I'm expecting that every time I show up at the home, I should be able to get a prime parking spot. Right. And that may not be realistic based on where the the building is located. Right. right? So if I know up front, if parking is a really big issue for me, then that may not be the right home, you know, as a, as a simple example. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to think about the recipe out and it's, I've spoken to you about this before, Deb, about seeing the recipe expanded as a philosophy that is outside of this industry. And I wonder what you think about in this time of social distance and truly isolation. I mean, I I don't think there's any of us that haven't been affected by isolation. What do you think? Do you think it's a that we're going to need these relational skills more than ever as we come back together after isolation? Do you think we will have forgotten some of them? How do we, what can the recipe do to inform the time after COVID about reminding us how to actually keep each other this engaged when we do come back together? What about introverts like me who are kind of liking it? (laughs) And, you know, I think as far as myself, I'm not going back into a corporate environment where, you know, just as you were describing, there's so much uncertainty with how people are going to continue to work together. And I think that, and maybe it's that that social distancing that is getting a bad rap, right? Because then you're thinking about that isolation. Mm -hmm. But I I think the concepts in the book around, you know, you can still make eye contact with somebody even if you're two meters away. Right. right? I mean, you Good still point. have the, the body language that you're, you can still be intentional with that. And I think that's make, perhaps where curiosity can really amp things up because we can get very defensive and judgmental and almost the grieving that's happening for all of us with what we've seen that we've lost. But if we could be more curious about, I wonder what this is going to create moving forward. I wonder how I could adapt and adjust to this and, and how, what do I need to do to be in a better place of acceptance and, and adapting to it? We probably have had more opportunity than ever to practice presence. Yes. Good point. True. We have. I wonder if we've remembered how important we are to one another and to the way we react to one another. I wonder if we'll be more tapped into the reactions that we both provoke in others and that they inspire in us. It makes me think of this. uh, I mentioned this to Sandy um, previously about, you know, I hear a lot of people posting about, Oh my God, I can't wait to hug people. And that's just one of the things coming out of this. But for me, what comes out of it is um, the, the joke about uh, how much more, relational we are in our zoom calls and i said to sandy like who does double jazz hands hi bye who waves hello and goodbye in a business meeting in a corporate headquarters right no one because they're seeing each other on a regular basis they're passing each other in the hall they're seeing each other through the windows of their offices but i find that now there's the celebration of this intense time where you start and you finish an online meeting and there's a lot more comfort in it's so great to see you and how have you been and how are things going i wonder what provokes 
evokes that? Are we, are our recipe skills enhanced? Is this a time of crisis that we'll talk about, you know, COVID taught me this? I hope this is an opportunity for us to do relationships better. Yeah, I mean, it could be just, uh, well, I'm sure there's people who've got the Zoom fatigue uh, just with back-to-back meetings. Something that I've been observing is we tend to perhaps have gone a little bit more self-focused. All of us have been impacted some, like, hugely, whether it be financially, job loss, I mean, those types of things. But I notice in conversation that people are almost yearning to be able to talk about and get assurance that they're going to be okay. Mm, That's great. And that's where I think there's an opportunity for us to have that self-empathy you know, there's those of us who do need that and to be able to acknowledge that we don't, we don't need to be uh, writing the epic novel while we're in quarantine type of thing right. or get right. the house completely decluttered. But also, I think taking the time to tap in and just ask somebody else, how are you doing? Yes. I don't know if you, if you guys have noticed that, but sometimes you can get into a conversation and it doesn't even come up to say, well, and how are you doing? Well, I appreciate your work that you're doing. I know that I've, I've been, and most people will be at some point connected to long-term care or to um, some of these communities that you're serving in. And I thank you for what you're doing because it's helped me personally. And Mm -hmm. I encourage people who are listening to, to get your book. And before we get you to tell them where they can get your book and find out all about what you're doing and how they can connect with you. I think Patty has, do you have some questions, Patty? Well, I have a, I have a couple. One goes back to the reading that you did and I didn't plan this one, but it occurred to me about the writing of your book is Steve Jobs said, trust something, you know, in order to connect the dots and you'll have to repeat the quote because even I've forgotten it, but I, I wondered what you trusted and what you trust now. What's at the core of you writing Recipe for Empathy? And what do you have to trust in order to keep doing this work? Well, I think what I, I trusted then, I kept thinking this is so interesting that I ended up serendipitously landing in long-term care and then I become a client. Oh, that yeah. there had to be a reason that my personal and professional lives collided the way that they did and the conversation that I had at, uh, over dinner that I re- referenced. So I trusted that leaving my corporate job, starting my own business for the first time in my 50s as an entrepreneur, was going to work and was going to provide value and support to the people that I care about, which are people who work in seniors care and families. Mm, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and, you know, that's, as Sandy said, how the elements of the recipe are so interconnected. But for me, at the root of everything you've written is this idea that we're all seeking trust, aren't we? We're all seeking the genuine, authentic connection that is based on trust. And I think every piece of uh, every piece of the recipe works on trust. And I wondered if um, you had to believe in people more if you had to truly believe that we have an infinite capacity for empathy in order to keep on helping in the way that you do yeah i do i mean we we don't always feel it or express it but i believe that we all have it somewhere within us and sometimes we need the coaching or the encouraging from somebody else to help bring it out mm, yeah. sometimes we can get really cynical and beaten down about things And those are those little moments you could have, I can think of as a family member feeling like I just was not going to be able to keep sustaining all of the plate spinning. And then having a care provider who just says, you look like you're having a hard time. Do you need a hug? Right. That small moment of empathy Mm -hmm. that, and who knows what that did for that person, recognizing that they were able to help another human being in that moment. You, uh, I was, segueing into sort of writing related question, which is, I was conscious as you were speaking that, you know, two areas of your life collided, and you had to write about them both. So you had to both remember your own experience and be critical of it in order to write the book, but also be willing to share that it was really difficult, it could have been done better. But again, go back to this not shaming, not being an unforgiving, really so admiring and being grateful for the care that your husband got. And you were 
constantly active in that relationship, as we see in the book. You were mediating your own responses. You were reacting to some of the crazy things that your husband did because he was a character. But you were on top of it, conscious of what you were doing, doing your best in stressful uh, situations. Did you find that going, doing the work that you do requires reflecting on the personal regularly in the same way that writing the book did? When I think about with delivering speeches and workshops, it takes me back to that time and it still is emotional to, to relive it and feel how I felt in that moment and continuing to do that because I believe that that helps with the impact in that perspective shifting for the frontline staff to then be able to choose or to buy into this is really important and I can, they, every one of them can bring that empathy and, you know, those moments that matter, they all have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, I think in, in moving forward with we're in this COVID situation, families are having a, a horrible time not being able to visit their loved ones and all of the guilt and the grief and the, all of those emotions that are happening and for the staff as well. And that's why I'm, I'm focusing on helping organizations with a new program called Reclaim Your Culture to be able to help them thinking about how do you re-onboard the families with all right. sorts of new processes and policies and protocols and all of those great things. And also assure them as they're coming back into the community with all of that change. Right. And because... It has changed all of us and, and how we're, and we don't know what the, what, are we calling it new normal or are we calling it something else now? I wonder what we will call it. Yeah. What that's going to look like. I think it's like planting seeds in spring. You know, we're all going to the greenhouse right now to see what our gardens turn into. And I think with COVID um, industries like long-term care, seniors care in general is going to look different and we don't know yet. I hope that our empathy and our capacity for empathy looks different as well. And I think your book is so timely. What do you read when you want inspiration? When you're the empathy guru, do you read other empathy stuff? Do you read nonfiction? Do you need to fill yourself up with lightheartedness? I mean, it's really positive coaching that you have to do going into these situations. You've got to believe in people at their absolute best. So what do you read to inspire you? Well, I just actually picked up to reread Alan Alda's book, if I understood you, but I had this look on my face. <laughs> his writing, his humor, but there's also really good solid research in there. So I think going back to that, and then I listened to your podcast where you were talking about Lori Gottlieb's book, and I thought, oh, I'm yeah, read that one. Maybe you should talk to someone. Yes. I thought that was great. And, um, and funny enough, I'm, I'm reading a book called It's Grief by Edie Nathan, because she and I have been oh. to work together and looking at how to be able to support families and staff with, well, this global grief that we're all feeling. Mm -hmm. So that has been, so I guess when I read, I'm, I'm reading part of it for research, part of it mm -hmm. for, you know, future writing. Uh, and I get my, I get my comedic relief through Netflix. Oh yeah, like the rest of us. So you're you're human, even though you're the queen of empathy. So what are you what are you writing next? What can we look forward to next? Could you reclaiming the culture be the next thing, or are you going to wait and see what the world of seniors care needs and just become the person that provides it? Well, but I am working on a second book, and it isn't titled yet, but it's it's basically a, a book for family members that have just become, they've just had the new identity of being a family member with admitting somebody to seniors care. So it will be something like you're a family member, now what? And it's really a tool to be able to help them on the emotional journey of this change in identity and lifestyle. Right. And working through a framework of the seven A's and that starting with having that uh, awareness and then acknowledgement all the way through to uh, accountability and appreciation. Oh. So it may not be a linear process, but it's to be able to assure them that what you're feeling is normal. And mm -hmm. here are some ways to be able to cope and adapt and adjust and bring this into your life in a way that you don't feel like kicking and screaming and resisting because nobody wakes up and says, boy, you know, I 
can't wait to have to move somebody into long-term care. And so it's, it's not about how to navigate the system, although I will have a chapter in there about the misconceptions that people have about seniors care, but I also want it to be a tool for them to be able to know what their role as a family member, as a contributor to this community that their loved one is now going to be living in and be able to support them with that. So that's what I'm working on right now. That's great. And where can people reach you or get a hold of you if they want to find out more? They can go to my website at debrabakti.com and they can email me at debra at debrabakti.com. Okay, and let's spell also, Deborah because there's lots of ways to spell Debra. So yeah. it's D E B O R A H B A K T I dot com. Great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast this week. And I I really am thrilled with the work you're doing and mm-hmm. feel that I've benefited from it myself. So thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Thank you. And thank you, Patty. It's a pleasure. See you next week. Okay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reframe Your Life. Are you ready to start writing your story? Are you inspired after hearing these authors in this series share their stories and inspire other people on their journey? If you are, check out pattymhall.com. Patty's not just my co-host on this podcast. She's an incredible book coach and mentor. And if you're ready to get your story out, I can't think of a better place for you to start than by going to her website and checking out what she has to offer.